now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this special release season of Just Science, we discuss leadership with prominent names in the forensic community. This episode features Ben Swanholm, the Forensic Science Section Supervisor at the Phoenix Police Department Laboratory Services Bureau. Swanholm discusses his personal leadership style, backed with resources that are helpful to not only forensic scientists, but anyone who is interested in pursuing a leadership role. Along with learning more about the ASCLAD Leadership Academy, we examine some of the unique ways Phoenix organizes its crime laboratory. This season was funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. Today we're in Phoenix, Arizona with Ben Swanholm, who is the forensic science section supervisor in the Laboratory Services Bureau of the Phoenix Police Department. He has worked with the criminal justice community in Phoenix for about a decade, providing high-quality, efficient, and effective analysis of physical evidence collected from crime scenes. Ben has been involved in the processing of evidence in several high-profile investigations, as well as leading and supporting numerous projects in the laboratory and police department. We're going to be talking to him today in part about what's going on in Phoenix, but also I want to hear from Ben because he's been one of the most important and instrumental drivers behind the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors Leadership Academy, and we're going to be talking about that work as well. Ben holds a BS in Forensic Science and Criminal Justice from the University of North Dakota, a Master of Science in Criminal Justice Administration with an emphasis in Forensic Science Administration from Royal University New Orleans and as a certified public manager. Ben, welcome to Just Science. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. You're in Phoenix now, and you grew up in North Dakota. There's meaning behind that, I assume. Yes. There isn't a lot of crime in North Dakota, so I had to move to get a job. Where I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, there's maybe one homicide a year when I was growing up. Despite the movie. Right, right? despite the movie. (laughs) And the TV show now, I think. That is true. (laughs) And here we have, you know, 100 plus homicides a year typically. The Fargo movie is kind of funny because most of it's actually filmed in Bemidji, Minnesota, but nobody really realizes that because of the title of. Fargo. I mean, Fargo is a much more happening place than Bemidji. I Bemidji. Think. Bemidji. Bemidji. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was Phoenix your first stop out of uh, Loyola University? So I actually came to Phoenix right out of University of North Dakota. Oh, so okay. I moved here for an internship with the crime laboratory. Mm-hmm. So as many people probably realize, there's a lot of competitiveness to getting forensic scientist positions. Mm-hmm. So I realized that early, so I got an internship lined up here. And they were actually building our new laboratory, the building we're in right now. Mm-hmm. At the time, because they were building the new lab, they were expanding their square footage significantly, which came with more positions being added to the laboratory. Were you in the evidence processing unit to start? Were you on the lab bench or where were you? So I started out in forensic serology, processing evidence that was collected from crime scenes for biological blood, semen, hair, cells, sperm, Mm -hmm. saliva. That's the way our lab is set up. We have what we call them screening and then DNA. So we would identify the materials to set it up for DNA analysis. So that's really the only area from a lab bench work that I've 
participated in. I did that for a few years and then started moving into more project or uh, off the bench responsibilities. So I think this is one of the places I would love to be in your job because it's such, it is such a beautiful facility. So if anybody comes to Phoenix, and I don't know if you can just walk right into the crime laboratory, but it's definitely worth it to see the lobby. It has the uh, most impressive chandelier in any crime laboratory that I've ever seen. Yes, so the city of Phoenix has a, a rule. I don't remember when the rule started, but when you build a new building, you have to have a certain percentage of the budget set towards art within that building or area the building's being built. So that is our art that's mandated by the city council. Anybody can come up, especially just to see the chandelier. We do have tours that if somebody wants to walk through mm -hmm. the halls, can't go into lab spaces and stuff like that, but we can definitely sure. give people tours if they're interested in it. One of the other cool things is that some of your facilities here for evidence processing, especially I was really impressed with the vehicle processing unit. Tell us a little bit about that in particular. So we have three vehicle bays on the lower level of the laboratory. Two of them have full like mechanic lifts so they can lift the cars up. That really helps with a lot of our investigations, gives a very controlled environment for doing those vehicle searches. We get a lot of armed robberies and assaults and that sort of thing that occur with vehicles. So it really allows it to get in a controlled environment and for the crime scene response personnel to really evaluate what potential evidence they can find in those vehicles versus in somebody's driveway or in a dusty parking lot or in a mass impound lot or that sort of thing. We clean them between each vehicle and that sort of thing to reduce contamination and that stuff from one vehicle to the next as well. So, yeah, the bays are very, very clean. Yeah. You can tell that you all pay close attention to that. So the evidence processing unit, how does it fit in between the crime scene folks and the evidence examination? How do you all organize that? So we were originally called the evidence processing unit, and now we've transitioned to calling the evidence screening section. So a few months ago, we transitioned and we took our forensic serology type of screening component out of the DNA section and moved it and combined it with the evidence processing unit, which historically did mostly just latent print development with some biological evidence collection. So we've now combined them into a hybrid of processing evidence for both biological collection, traditionally serology, as well as latent print development or friction ridge detail development. How does trace fit into that? So we have a trace section. All of our analysts are trained on the observation and identification of trace material that may be helpful for an investigation. Depending on the circumstances of what that evidence is and what the case is, uh, we may just write or document in our notes and or report that trace evidence was found and it's available for analysis in the future because a lot of times of the evidence we're processing, we're developing friction-rich detail or latent prints or biological material that may help develop a better answer for the investigator than some of that trace material may do, at least in the first round of analysis for that case. Because trace evidence is very difficult and time-consuming to analyze on several levels, oftentimes leave that to a second or third round in those investigations because we can often answer or try to answer some of the bigger questions that are necessary for those investigations through our processing of our main throughput like latent prints and DNA and firearms and those sorts of things. 
but the section itself that have been screening section kind of falls as a go-between or triage almost for most of the rest of the laboratory. So unless it's like a blood tube or urine sample for drugs or alcohol for toxicology or just drugs being tested to see if they're drugs, almost everything that's coming into the laboratory that has downstream analysis is coming through that team or my team. So if it's a gun, we're developing processing of our prints and swabbing it and the gun goes on to our firearm section to be entered into Nibin and or compared to bullets or casings at crime scenes. Mm -hmm. The latent prints that we may develop goes to our latent print comparative unit that gets entered into APHIS to do the comparisons against known people. And the swabs go to the DNA section to get processed and compared to um, known standards or get entered into the CODIS database. Now, do you all use an evidence processing system per se to track the progress of evidence, or how do you manage that part of it? So it's kind of a twofold process. So we use a laboratory information system, Oral Limbs. We use Justice Tracks. That's been really effective for us. It gives us a lot of flexibility because it has some ability to have some customized fields, which we've used to maximize to help manage our case management and throughput. Because of the volume that we have, so in that context, my team um, has several thousand requests that are just pending backlog, which is a request that's over 30 days. And so a lot of the limb systems don't have a good case management system to manage that sort of volume of pending. So our biggest challenge is matching the resources that we have to the cases that need to be done. So we've also built some Microsoft Access applications that run off of the LIMS data database to be able to manage the requests that we have to determine priorities in what cases we should move forward and what cases we have to move forward with. Sure. Now, are you all then responsible for the interface with like an investigator or a prosecutor as well in terms of telling them what the status of the case processing is or how does that work? So that's a good question. About two, three years ago, the department purchased a new records management system for the sworn side. And within that, sworn side has a module for crime lab requests. We, with the vendor of that um, program and Justice Tracks, work to create an interface that connects the two databases. Mm -hmm. So they pass some information back and forth depending on what type of testing they've requested and the analysis that needs to be done. So let's say, for instance, they requested an item to process for latent print development. That gets entered into the system, gets automatically communicated to our system, and subsequently, when we've completed the analysis, it goes back and says that that processing has been completed. The challenge with that is it's just one directional along those lines. So they made a request for latent print development. We processed it for that. That answers that request. In order to help some facilitation of efficiency, everything that we develop that from latent print side automatically gets entered into APHIS. So my mm -hmm. team makes the request within our LIM system to notify the latent print comparison unit that there's an APHIS entry that they need to evaluate for that case. There's no trigger that the investigator has to see 
whether that request has been made or whether it's been completed or whether it's mm. pending or that sort of thing. From a latent print comparison, the investigator has to make an additional request for that. So there's a little bit of disconnect along those lines, but in our report, we communicate from our latent print development report that Friction Ridge was developed and it will be entered into APHIS and evaluated. So they can see that we're doing that, as in if they read the report, but it's not necessarily actively available to see what's pending and what's not. The same concept happens for DNA analysis. So they request DNA analysis on, let's say, a t-shirt that was found at an armed robbery scene. Sure. At this point, though, your unit is still engaged because you're doing the serology work up right. front. So how does the investigator know which pieces of the serology are a priority or which ones might be valuable or not? Are they Because you're working that evidence processing right. side. So when that evidence processing side from the serology point happens, so take, for instance, the t-shirt, we would process that t-shirt depending on the circumstance for where, for possible blood. There's probably not a sexual component to it if it's an armed robbery, but that it could be searched for that necessarily. Sure. But we would send a report again back saying that we had processed this shirt and swabbed, say, the collar or taken a cutting from the armpits or the red-brown staining that indicated the presence of blood. Sure. Um, but from a triage standpoint, it depends on the case. So all homicide cases within the city of Phoenix, we have a case evaluation meeting. So the case agent comes typically within a week or two of the case occurring, and we discuss the evidence that they have in relation to their case to identify which items to move forward in. Because mm -hmm. they often collect several hundred items, and yeah. we're not going to process that many right out of the gate. And then the other cases that are not homicides, pretty much myself, I run the case management component for my team, so I run the triage. So either I'll work with the case agent or I'll look at the items they submitted, um, look at the case and determine what we think is the best moving forward for the first round. So some items they request may or may not be done in mm -hmm. the first round, but we also communicate that in the report that these items weren't done. So sure. that way they know once the DNA analysis is done or the latent print analysis is done that there's items to go back to that they may want to based on the results that are given. So it's kind of a combination depending on the case and the volume of evidence and the complexity to determine how we decide to move forward. It's really communication and that's the biggest key, making sure everybody understands what's happening with the evidence and what processes are going to occur. Why combine all of that under one unit? We were talking about right. it beforehand. That is unusual, especially the serology component, to be in that part of the lab. Tell me what the thinking was there. The thinking really came from, and it is outside of, I guess you'd say, the standard norm. A lot of the latent print development components are usually housed in latent print comparison sections of the laboratory, and the serology components are held in the DNA. It really became part of an efficiency concept. So we did some test runs or trials with the concept. We trained a few people just to see how effective it would be. And it turned out because you have so much evidence that crosses both paths. So let's say a knife from a stabbing. Well, you could have latent prints on that knife as well as you could have blood and or touch DNA from the person that's handling the knife, blood from the person handling the knife as well. So historically or previously, the case agent would have to decide. You either get prints or you get DNA. 
Well, we did some studies to found that the latent print processing that we do in Phoenix, which is typically superglue, cyanoacrylate, and dye stains, don't impact the ability to get DNA from those items. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having for that knife, let's say, to go to two different people to get processed, and then you have to have two reports and two technical administrative reviews, mm -hmm. now we have one person, a single chain of custody, a single entry into that evidence bag, and a single process component, so it's far more efficient. So over, I think when I did the analysis, it was one or two years time frame, it saved us 50 to $75,000 in productivity, having one person do that analysis versus having multiple people at multiple different stages, passing that evidence to different people, the tech and admins, and that sort of thing. So it was really an, an effectiveness from time, like we're not saving money. Right, we're so overwhelmed with casework that 50 to 75,000, what we're really talking about is we can now spend that time on other cases that can be done. Would you argue that it also gives you faster turnaround time? I mean, one of the uh, big things I know that investigators are always complaining about, especially is turnaround time on latent prints, right? Mm -hmm. They like latent print units actually to be even in police departments, not crime laboratories, right. which is a subject for another time, I guess. But, yeah. but so, I mean, that's a lot of pressure on you guys. Are you, how do you prioritize in that regard? That's a good question, and it's a constant juggle balance, which is a main component of my responsibility as well as you could say the bane of my existence because <laughs> I have to deal with people that think that their cases are more important than everybody else and trying to balance that. You're the problem now, aren't you? I'm, you're the, I'm the problem and the solution <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Okay, so yeah. trying to balance those components and still make sure we have that customer service relationship with the mm -hmm. investigators and with the prosecutor's office. So again, that goes back to that communication component. Mm -hmm. We can't do your case because of this because of whatever reason, volume, casework that we have, because a lot of their arguments are like, well, it's just one gun or it's just one knife. Well, if we do that one gun or one knife, then I can't do or process this homicide case or I can't mm -hmm. process this armed robbery case. So in Phoenix and Arizona, there's a law that we call Rule 15, which means that if individual is arrested you have to complete the analysis within 45 days of their arrest. Mm -hmm. Well, that typically doesn't happen, but that's just the nomenclature we use to identify essentially an in-custody case. Sure. So we typically will prioritize cases that are in custodies and or have pending trial dates. We have priority cases, which are cases that are potentially safety or risk areas for the community because the individual committing those crimes may end up causing significant damage to other people or they right. may kill people in the future or that sort of thing. And then violent crimes against people and then property crimes. So what ends up happening is that we don't get to touch a lot of those property crimes and sometimes even those violent crimes like armed robberies and sometimes homicides just due to the volume of in custody cases that sure. we have. Are you doing so, much DNA on the property crime side? Not that often, unless mm -hmm. we have a grant that we've received that's specifically focused on that, and those are getting processed on overtime outside of the normal business operations. Mm -hmm. We try to throw some in because it's often the most common crime that people mm -hmm. are impacted by in their daily life. The common person gets 
burglarized more often than they get an armed robbery committed against them or an assault or that sort of thing. But they can be difficult because of sometimes the lack of evidence or the quality of the evidence that are left at those scenes. Sure, yeah. Right. It's, again, trying to find the best balance we can with the resources that we have. So, for instance, like my team has 300 requests pending for in-custody cases. So a lot of the times I'm not able to assign a case to somebody until it has a pending trial date. And then oftentimes we can't complete all of the analyses within the laboratory by those dates, so the prosecutors end up having to get continuance and that sort of thing. And part of the reason is a lot of cases plea out. So Mm -hmm. should we be spending our limited resources on cases that the defendant in the end may take a plea deal for so we didn't have to process that evidence? So it's trying to find the best balance of when we process evidence to how effective and how needed it is in the case for that investigation to be sustained or adjudicated. Of course, the serology is where it gets really sensitive, especially in the sexual assault case. Right. But the key with all of that is what you're talking about with respect to the number of evidence pieces, right? Trying to understand which ones are the most important, even from a particular case, and getting those into the system. Would you find that the way in which you're doing business allows you to prioritize in that regard a little better than you might have otherwise? Or do you think it's basically the same decision-making process in terms of which pieces of evidence, especially serology-type evidence, are being pulled out for analysis? From a business practice standpoint, I think we're doing the best that we can, especially given our resources and volume. One of the challenges we had several years ago was with case agents and county attorneys because they were upset that their cases weren't done in a timely or effective manner. Mm -hmm. So we've developed triggers within our limb systems and those access databases to help us identify and prioritize those cases that are most important to those individuals. So it's really, one, developing that communication so they know when they need to let us know information as well as we've communicated to them what we've done and then identifying where the gaps were to be able to solve what they were getting upset with. So how can we develop a relationship with them to fill in those gaps to avoid the tension about those situations. We become far more effective as a team if we all know where we are and what our expectations are of each other and the timing of that. And the investigators and prosecutors know that we will try to identify when we're not going to meet a trial date as soon as we can so they don't go to court the day before they have trial and say, judge, I need a continuance because the lab hasn't completed the analysis in those cases. Right. So. It's all about people in the it, end. In the it? end, it is. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. It's not about the science at that point. <laughs> yeah. So how long have you been the section supervisor? So I've been the section supervisor for three years now. Okay. The other topic, of course, I want to go over with you is the Leadership Academy. And you've done a lot of work with that Leadership Academy and the whole idea of improving leadership management within the crime laboratory community in general. So I'm assuming you really, really enjoy the work as the section supervisor. I do. I really enjoy the team component as well as the helping component. So to me, along those lines, and one of the reasons I wanted to get involved in leadership and the Leadership Academy, it's not about the position or the power per se, or I get to Mm -hmm. tell people what to do, or I don't have to answer to as many 
people. It's really about more servant leadership and being able to help and improve the members of your team or the laboratory or the criminal justice community in being effective to help those investigations that can then subsequently help the potential safety and security of the city that you live in or the community that you live in. One of the biggest challenges I feel that in relation to leadership in forensic laboratories is that a lot of us are scientists first, and I think I'm a better leader than a scientist uh -huh. now, but with being scientists first, we often don't have the best skills to be able to lead. And so that's one of the big reasons for that Leadership Academy and why it's one of my passions, because I think it's a gap that exists within our forensic science community that we often promote people that are the best scientists, yeah. not necessarily the best leaders and or managers. So trying to give people that extra set of skills, as well as get, I guess, the word out that it's not necessarily just about science when you get into those leadership type of roles or those management roles. It's more about the people skills than it is about the science at that point. Well, yeah, and that's a very, very hard lesson. It's always been a problem, not just in crime laboratories, but in scientific laboratories in general. I, I experienced it from my first day that I walked into a research laboratory. And it's absolutely the case that the people who are promoted are the ones who are, you know, the best scientists, even in a research context. Right. And they can be a challenge <laughs> as yes. managers. But I think it's not really their fault in some respects because there's nothing in scientific education and training for how to manage people or even how to manage like finances and organizational dynamics and things like that. Right. I 100% agree. Mm -hmm. That's that's one of the challenges that exists within science education. It's mm -hmm. science-based, it's not people-based, it's not psychology, it's not understanding personalities. And that's really where I see or have a lot of fun, I guess you would say, mm -hmm. when you can help provide direction or information for individuals to help better themselves to be able to respond in those difficult situations, then you see them do that on their own and that's the accomplishment, right? We do casework and we got all these cases and we get mm -hmm. convictions or we get exonerations and those sort of thing. But then as the leader, you're typically or often not doing those sorts of things. The end goal of your output and success is often not necessarily directly measurable. It's in the people's skills and their development and how successful they are is really how successful you are. I like to think of myself as a good manager and leader of scientific and technical people, admitting that I probably would be a terrible manager of a Walmart, okay? Uh -huh. Because technical people, in some respects, I relate to them because it's like, give me my resources, give me my tools, let me know what the expectations are, and then let me go and do my thing. That's certainly true on the scientific research side. Is that true in the crime laboratory as well, or is it a slightly different dynamic, you think? That gets kind of to the core of, I guess you would call one of my driving philosophies and values related to leadership. And really it's kind of based on two books really summed it up for me to be able to communicate better about what I really felt mm -hmm. about the situation. Is Simon Sinek's um, book, Start With Why, and Daniel Pink's book, Drive. 
Simon Sinek's a very good presenter, lots of TED Talks. I think a lot of people know of him or have heard of him. S-I-N-E-K. Yes. You can Google and, and search on TED Talk and you get a lot of Simon Sinek and it's always great. Yes. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. very, he has great engaging mm-hmm. stories that really draw you into what the point he's trying to make, but really that why concept. So why do we come to work each day? We need to have that. So developing that within your team so it's not about oh i did five cases this week Mm -hmm. and that's what my measure is if i did four cases i'm a failure right right? like Mm -hmm. that's not what we should be coming to work each day about if Mm -hmm. we can get five cases that's great because we're helping what our why should be which is helping the criminal justice community or your community help investigations to help the safety and security of your community but the daniel pink book drive really takes the concept to my end and explains it from an application standpoint. So Daniel Pink talks about what our motivations are, which is really what why is about. So motivation started with, let's call it motivation 1.0. It's survival instincts. I need Mm -hmm. food, I need shelter, I need all of these things to survive. And then as humans and as we developed in societies, we developed all we need rules because we have to work with each other to be able to manage those situations. And that kind of developed uh, society, right? So we all had specific roles to develop the effectiveness of society. This guy worked in a factory making shirts. This woman worked in a factory making guns or something along those lines. So society sustains itself. Mm -hmm. But in the industrial revolution, it was a lot of lever pulling. So Mm -hmm. you pulled this lever a hundred times a day and you made this many widgets and that's how you're effective. And that lasted for a long time and it really is a giant baseline of how leaders or managers look at what their duty should be. How many levers or what's the output, which is often looked at as a carrot and stick approach. If you don't get this many widgets, you're going to get the stick. And I'm going to hold this carrot out in front of you to try to get you to get to this output level. So that's when I know you're effective. But what's happening is, is that especially in forensic science, we're not lever pullers. We're looking at concepts and trying to figure out what's the best process for this evidence in the context of these cases with the best science and what's the best resolution and what can we communicate. So it becomes what he calls motivation 3.0, which is based on autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So in order for you to be effective, giving you a carrot and stick is going to demean you because a lot of your work is based on your creativity or what your own desire to do the processing and to do the casework Mm -hmm. type of thing. So it's trying to institute and give people the ability to have autonomy about their work and their work product, and then be able to give them the skills to master that, and then have a purpose for to answer those things. I put a lot of time into the training of my individuals and working on their mastery to allow them to just run on those cases and investigations. So I'm not necessarily micromanaging them or working on their every day. They have the ability to be autonomous and process that case and that evidence as they see fit within the validated guidelines of those SOPs. So can you make those SOPs so it gives individuals 
the ability to make decisions or do you make them so stringent that they can only follow a single path process all the way in the motivation 2.0 range where you're just worrying about lever pulling of the individual you have to give them some flexibility and autonomy to be able for them to feel valued and to have a purpose when they come to work each day. They're doing things on their own versus what you're telling them. It's not just about pulling the lever, it's about the quality of right. what comes out of that lever uh, as well. There's a wonderful analogy that I heard recently about coffee. So 30 years ago, coffee was coffee. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And now coffee is something else altogether. I right. mean, I don't know whether we're having more volume of coffee, but for the experience of coffee, we're putting a lot more value right. into it. There's a lot more variety to it. And there's baristas now as yeah. opposed to just Mr. Coffee, coffee make. You know, That's kind of like a microcosm of society as a whole. We are moving out of that industrial era kind of way of looking at things, and we're trying to add value and I think it's important, though, in crime laboratories, it's an interesting dynamic because I remember seeing some of the Forensic Science Commission things and other things like that where folks wanted crime laboratory professionals to have blinders on so much that they were almost like little robots. So what they really wanted was for a computer to take over the processing of the evidence, not realizing that's not quite how the world works because you're talking about the interface between you know, science and the physical world and how people's kind of evil toward each other, right, right in crime. Yes. And so it seldom is that you can be an automaton in the crime laboratory and be effective. Right. There is a balance there between, you know, you, you're going to have standard operating procedures and you're going to make sure you, you're objective as much as possible in your analysis, but also you have this bigger picture about the reliability and the value of the lever you're pulling by your work in the case. Yes, and then that's where you know your method development as well as your training becomes a, a key component. You have to invest the time to train the person so they have the skill level necessary for that area that has to be evaluated and non-robotic. Oftentimes, laboratories end up with an open position, and their main goal through their interview process and their training, I just need to get this person in as quick as I can, get them trained as fast as possible so I can have some output because I got cases backing up. We spend a lot of investment on my team on getting people trained to get all of those variables prepared as much as we can. We're not gonna cover everything, but giving them enough of the knowledge and skill set to be able to apply the techniques appropriately given all of the circumstances that we have. Especially on my team's world where you could have a bottle, you could have a gun, you could have a shirt, you could have a sheet. You have just an enormous amount of range of evidence items that you can run into versus let's say a toxicology component where you have blood or if you have urine. Now there's variables there but it's just not as many variables so it's easier to have defined methods and outputs when you have less input variables to the evidence that you're processing. I recommend to folks the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence has a set of online leadership courses, about a dozen of them. Jody Wolf from here in Phoenix actually did a couple of the courses on there. Yes. And they're a nice complement to the AskLad Leadership Academy. Tell me a basic description of the AskLad Leadership Academy and how folks can access it. So the ASCLAD Leadership Academy is a program that runs and coincides with the ASCLAD Symposium. And ASCLAD is the American Society of Crime Lab Directors. It's a professional organization. 
So the first part is a webinar series. So it's two hours, one day a week for 12 weeks. In the past, we've had three sections. We're looking at making some modifications to that, so there may be some additional sections, but I'll talk about what we've done historically and why we've done it. So the three sections are leadership, communications, and HR. And my section that I've taken on is the leadership section. Tim Scanlon out of Jefferson Parish in Louisiana takes on the communication section, and John Collins who has his own HR consulting company and worked in forensics previously, takes on the HR component. So the goal of the leadership section is really to introduce leadership topics to individuals that have no experience or very limited experience. They've just come into a leadership role or they're trying to prepare for being in a leadership role in the future. And some of the challenges of that, like transitioning from a peer to a supervisor, some of the areas and skills you have to be successful in to be a leader. Leadership is one of the most complicated things that you will do because you have to manage so many different personalities and people and organizational responsibilities. So it's trying to introduce some of those concepts to be able to get people understanding them and actively engaged in them. We're not the end-all be-all to leadership. This is just an introduction to try and get people introduced to the concept so they can identify them and move forward with their own development in being successful. That second component is communication. As we've mentioned previously, one of the biggest things is being able to communicate effectively. So Tim talked about a range of verbal, nonverbal communication, how to be effective in your communication, team dynamics and communicating in team dynamics, and how all of that mixes together with leadership to help you be effective. One of the largest challenges new supervisors or leaders have is it comes when you have employees that are not good. Great employees are easy to be a leader for or manage. They don't sure. cause you problems. You stay awake at night for the people that aren't being effective or are causing problems within your laboratory. So it's really about developing that skills to help you have those conversations with those individuals and identify how the direction that individual needs to move forward or what you need to change within your team to make it more effective as a group. And then the HR component is because laboratories aren't necessarily given a lot of human resource support for personnel issues, legal issues related to equal employment opportunities, sexual harassment, bullying, and that sort of thing. So it's to try and get individuals an understanding of those concepts so they don't go and make mistakes that could end up causing havoc for their new supervisory careers along the lines of asking the right questions, putting together job descriptions to make sure you don't end up infringing on people's rights because mm -hmm. of your job descriptions, making sure that's communicated at the front end. So if you need somebody to be able to identify a red-brown stain, well, they would have to be able to see colors. So you would need that in your job description. If you don't put that in your job description as a requirement and somebody comes in and is colorblind, and then you disqualify them from the process because they're colorblind, you've now violated their rights because you didn't mention that it's a qualification of the position. 
One of so the, it's a lot of, of those nuances. Uh, fun things in your in-person is you end with a uh, kind of a mock city council and you're starting a new crime laboratory. And yes. you talk through some of those hypotheticals have, or actually have the students talk through some of those hypotheticals to the group, which yeah. I think is great. The capstone is a, a mock crime laboratory where the people on your team, which is typically five to eight people, however many people are at the table, you are given a crime lab and you have to develop from the ground up how you're going to train all of those individuals within the time frame, how you're going to get casework done. And then we throw some little twists and turns into the mix during that time frame because life and laboratories aren't linear. You make plans and then and the next day or the next hour or the next month, somebody comes in and ruins your plans. So as a team, how do you respond to those situations and how do you work through those challenges to develop solutions that are effective? And we have a little fun with it and put, create some crazy situations and it usually ends up being the highlight at the end for people because of that. I so. had a, a great privilege to see it last year. And people can register for it by looking on the Ask Cloud website, right? www.ascld.org. Yes, it's not open yet, as in today, which is November 7th. The Ask Cloud Symposium is in the end of May this year, so I would expect the Academy to start somewhere at the end of January, early February, with the applications or ability to sign up within the next month or so. But with that attendance in the ASCLAD Leadership Academy, you also get to attend the symposium for that same cost. So the cost of the Leadership Academy is also includes your attendance at the symposium if you would like to attend. That's, so. a, that's a deal. That's a dynamic deal, Ben. Yes. Well, Ben, thank you very much. We've been with Ben Swanholm from the Phoenix Police Department Crime Laboratory today. He's uh, given us an awful lot of information about what he's doing in the Evidence Processing Unit and in the ASCLED Leadership Academy. Thank you for being with us, Ben. No problem. It was my pleasure. Next week on Just Science, we will hear from Jody Wolf, who is the Assistant Crime Lab Administrator for the Phoenix Police Department Laboratory Services Bureau. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. 